Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I am joined, as always, by Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. So, Simon, it's been an interesting week again in the markets. Obviously, a lot still going on. The war in Ukraine is developing, not perhaps in the way that the Russians were hoping. We've had the fallout from the announcements by central banks about what they're trying to do about inflation, which has been coming in even higher than a number of people were already forecasting. And so it's a very mixed and uncertain picture. But it has been quite a good week for the equity markets. Bond yields have been rising, but equities have also been uh, performing quite well. So what's been going on, Simon? How are the investment trust world coping with all this swirling uncertainty? Well, let's start with the numbers, as we always do. I mean, for the first four trading days of the week, the investment company's sector finds itself actually in negative territory, down about 0.7%. And that was all a result of the little mini blip that we saw on Thursday. As you rightly pointed out, it's been, in general, not a bad week for equity investors. In fact, the UK market finds itself in positive territory, up about 0.6% the first four days of the week in the form of the FTSE All Share Index. Um, we've seen discounts widen out a little bit. They've probably moved from about a 5 to 5.7% on average. And just to remind people, the sector average discount came in about 3, 3.1% last year. So we have seen a little bit of a derating of investment trusts in general. But your comments are absolutely right. Markets are very focused on, on the war in Ukraine and its implications. We've seen the oil price go back up this week. Uh, lots of talk of Russia scaling back supply. Uh, and obviously, inflation remains very much to the forefront of most people's minds. The Federal Reserve apparently prepared to act aggressively, which some people are taking to mean that we could see a 50 basis point hike in May. But uh, also in the UK as well, lots of headlines this week to accompany Rishi Sunak's spring statement that we're going to see the biggest fall in living standards since records began in 1956. Indeed, and that has generated a lot of comment, as you say, and it is something we're going to be talking about, I guess, for the rest of this year. It's going to be a tough period for everybody, but particularly for those on uh, lower incomes, it's going to be an issue for them. And of course, that has political consequences as well. So there's an awful lot going on, as well as these distressing pictures are still coming out from Ukraine, where the war rolls on, where the uh, Russian invasion appears to be somewhat stalling. We'll dive straight into the announcements and results this week for Investor Trust. There's an awful lot, actually. This time of year is when we get a lot of uh, annual results and also some interim results. So we're going to have to skip through one or two of them quite quickly. But before we get there, we're going to start off with a quick roundup of some corporate activity, some updates and uh, some new information. So let's kick off by uh, talking about Aberdeen New India, ticker ANII. So they announced this week the introduction of a conditional tender offer for up to 25% of its share capital at a 2% discount to NAV after cost. And that will be triggered by NAV underperformance against the MSCI India index. And that will be measured over a five-year period, which will start on the 1st of April this year, so 2022, and run to the end of March 2027. And this mechanism, the adoption of this mechanism, follows Board concerns about the fund's NAV relative underperformance over shorter time periods. So over the 10 years to the end of February, the fund had outperformed on an NAV basis of 164% compared with a rise of 151% for the MSCI India, but over shorter time periods, it's lagged. 
So the board are also proposing to change the frequency of the continuation vote from an annual to a five-yearly basis, uh, obviously to bring it in line with that conditional tender offer. But this all requires shareholder approval, and that will be sought at the time of the AGM, which is expected to be held in September. And just briefly, what has been the discount experience? I mean, you mentioned the 10-year figures, but more recently, has it been getting worse or getting getting better? So on the last five years, NAV total return comes in about 40%. That compares to a rise of 59%. Uh, for the MSCI India index. But I would suggest that that might be a bit of a tough index to beat. So if you look at the other Indian funds in this space, so JP Morgan Indian, that's up 22% over that five-year period. So Aberdeen New India is certainly in good company and not keeping up with the benchmark. In terms of the discount, I've got it on a discount of about 16% or so at the moment, and that compares with an average of 14% over the previous 12 months. Okay, so that is a significant number, even for a specialist country uh, trust, I would say. It is upper end of up double digits. Okay, let's move on and talk about Rockwood Realization, ticker RKW, where there's been uh, some corporate development. You might just remind us what this vehicle uh, is and what it used to be. So it used to be called Gresham House Strategic, and there's a whole kind of saga with this one. Basically, the board decided to move it to Harwood Capital, Gresham House, who were a significant shareholder in the fund, were not in favour of that. And basically, the move did happen, but uh, it adopted a managed wind-down approach. So the development this week is that Gresham House has now sold its entire uh, just short of 24% interest in the fund. And that's gone to a number of institutional investors, including Harwood Capital, the new investment manager. So now Harwood Capital owns just short of 29% of the share capital. The member of the uh, investment team, Richard Stavely, also owns about 1% of the fund. So they have turned to the board and said, well, in their opinion, Rockwood Realisations managed wind-down policy does not operate in the best interests of shareholders and should be reviewed. So the board's going to have a look at this again and consider whether change is merited. But that would all be subject to shareholder approval at a general meeting. So essentially what seems to be happening is that uh, now that Gresham House has, has sold its stake and is therefore not in a position to have an influence over the outcome, that Harvard Capital is, is hoping that they can uh, basically take control of this trust. Is, is that, do you think, what's happening? Well, I think they're very keen to make it an ongoing vehicle. Uh, Richard Stavely was formerly at Gresham House. He's moved across to Harvard Capital and uh, you know he's got a decent track record with this particular vehicle. Um, there has been a tender recently, so £25 million pounds, uh, has already been returned to shareholders. And as I say, they've got this kind of managed wind-down process underway, which runs to the end of next year. But clearly, Harwood Capital, as I say, one suspects, is quite keen to make this an ongoing viable fund. And so there must be a reason why Harwood has uh, got 28.9% and Richard Stavely has got another 1%. So that brings them up to the threshold of where they would have to... Uh, Take some corporate action, is that right? 30% is the normal threshold. Well, if they, if they went through that 30%, they'd have to make a bid for the whole company, which obviously one suspect they would want to avoid for very obvious reasons. So I suspect that's the reason why they've come in at that level. Yeah, they'd rather do it this way by agreement with the board rather than go to that level. Exactly. Do we know uh, anything about the price that uh, Gresham House got for its shares and uh, what's happened to the share price of Rockwood Realization uh, in the aftermath? Is it uh, still trading at a discount? It's still absolutely trading at a discount. So I've got it uh, on my screen. Certainly at the close of Thursday at about a 10% discount or so. And that's kind of broadly in line with its average over the previous 12 months. I mean, in terms of the share price, yeah, it's probably about £14.20 or so at the moment. So um, that hasn't moved too much in the last few trading days. So that sale went through without causing major impact on the share price itself. Exactly right. So let's move on then and talk about another situation, strategic equity capital, 
ticker SEC. There's been some uh, manoeuvring around this one as well. Yeah, so actually, talking to Gresham House, this is uh, an investment company that's in their stable. If you remember, this was subject to an approach from uh, a DCN investment trust, which Harvard Capital have an interest in about a possible uh, combination or merger. The Board of Strategic Equity Capital decided not to go down that route, but instead of put a whole series of measures in basically looking to returning capital to shareholders. And we've seen the results of the first one of those. It was a 10% tender offer. And we actually saw 65% of the shares in issue uh, look to tender. So it was significantly oversubscribed. So only 3.1% of the excess shares tendered will be satisfied. But it's worth noting that, as I say, there are a series of measures. They're going to look to put a buyback program in place as well to buy, I think, up to about 9% of the share capital. So there will be further liquidity measures. And indeed, in 2025, the board have promised a 100% realisation opportunity. So there's a number of reasons why this fund has been re-rated. It's moved from, a, on average, 13% discount over the previous 12 months. It now finds itself on a 9% discount. And one suspects as we get nearer to 2025, that discount will tend to narrow in. Okay, so obviously Gresham House want to maintain this trust and management of this trust if they can. I mean, it's a bigger vehicle than Rockwood Realisation, is it not? It's got a significant amount of, of assets or a reasonably significant amount of assets. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, Rockwood, as I said, it's already returned quite a lot of cash to shareholders. So it finds itself on a market cap of about $36 million now. So it is small. Strategic equity capital, I've got it on my screen, about £190 million market cap. Okay, so I suppose the question now, given that sort of tender offer, is whether the board is doing enough to convince enough shareholders to uh, continue with this uh, package of measures. And they've very clearly, I think, set out that they will be talking about a, a buybacks if the discount exceeds 5%. I think that's the, the, the number that I read. That's correct. It's a, a, anything 5 or above percent, yeah. Okay, so we'll see whether that one is effective or not. Let's move on and talk about third point investors. Ticker TPOU, a trust that we've had reason to mention on a number of occasions recently. Tell us what the latest is from this particular saga involving this hedge fund investment trust. Well, this is the result of the exchange mechanism. Uh, And again, without getting too bogged down in the details, this was the ability through shareholders in third-point investors to elect to shift into the master fund, which is a different vehicle, but effectively provides the same exposure. So my recollection is you had to have a kind of minimum $10 $10 million stake in order to participate in this. So not clearly designed for retail investors, uh, should there be any on the register. But we found out the results of the 2022 facility, and it's actually quite significantly oversubscribed. I think there was a $75 million limit, um, and they had requests for $170 million to take advantage of this exchange. It was at a 2% discount. So that's interesting in itself. Obviously, investors who've opted for that will be scaled back and the shares in the new master fund will be issued in the third week of April. At the same time, the board, which, as we've discussed in recent weeks, uh, has seen a number of changes of late. They continue to review strategic options in continuing to address the level of the discount. Which remains stubbornly quite wide, I think. Is that right? I mean, there's been some improvement, but not much, I think. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's a fair comment. So I've got it about a 13% discount level, and that compares with probably an average about 14 15% over the previous 12 months. So that one is also another one that's going to run on. Let's move on then quickly and talk about 24 Income and UK Mortgages, uh, where there's a proposed merger. Uh, That's uh, ticker TFIF, 24 Income and uh, UKML for UK Mortgages. So this one's really kind of pushed on, actually, and it's almost completed. So shareholders in UK Mortgages approved the necessary resolutions relating to the merger and trading in the shares of UK Mortgages 
have already been suspended. In fact, those shares will be cancelled on the 30th of March. Uh, we've also got some details in terms of the conversion ratio. So to kind of cut to the chase, about £149 million or so will be rolled over from UK mortgages, which will take 24 income fund up to assets of about £729 million. So not an insubstantial fund at all. Yes, indeed. So that one has gone. Uh, and then let's move on and quickly talk about Crystal Amber Fund which was an announcement came out today. We're recording this on Friday before lunchtime on this occasion for reasons of other commitments. So what's the story about Crystal Amber, Simon? Yes, they announced that they've uh, written a letter to shareholders of Allied Mines. That's one of their key holdings. Explain the reasons for requisitioning uh, a vote on removing a non-executive director, a gentleman called Harry Rain. Crystal Amber owns about 18% of Allied Mines, uh, and they set out the reasons why they've taken this action, including... Um, Allied Mines, poor share performance and high total expense ratio. So as uh, people may remember, Crystal Amber itself is going for a realisation process, but clearly this is an important holding for them. So they're still keeping true to their kind of more activist investment approach. So this seems quite a drastic step. You're trying to (laughs) get rid of the chairman. What do you think will happen here? I mean, that's a slightly uh, unorthodox approach. Do they have the clout to push that through, do you think? So they own 18% of the company, uh, which is obviously a significant shareholding, but at the same time, probably not enough in itself to affect the change. So one suspects that other institutional shareholders invariably will have to be of the same mind in order for this to come to pass. Okay, now we can move on and talk about some fundraising. We haven't had much cause to talk about fundraising so far this year because of the very volatile market conditions uh, that we've seen. But we have got some news this week. A couple of significant placings have gone on. So let's start with SDCL Efficiency Income Trust. Yes, so they announced that they were looking to raise £75 million. Basically, uh, they've got a, a pipeline that they value at £100 million that they expect to be completed in the next three to six months. They do have some cash reserves, but the cash reserves and the credit facility are pretty much fully committed. So we found out at the end of the week that that placing had been oversubscribed. Uh, They basically raised £100 million against their target of £75 million, and that was at an issue price of 115p, so a successful fundraise. These energy efficiency trusts, there's a couple of them, I think, they proved very popular, and they've been trading at a significant premium beforehand. So... uh... Is it too early to say what's going to happen to the share price there? I presume it's going to move back up again a little bit if it was an oversubscribed issue. I think that's right, yeah. So at the close of Thursday, we had them on a 116.5p. In Friday trading, as per my screen, they'd just come off about half a p. But early days in the trading history on Friday. And uh, what's the high they've had in the course of their time on the market? So I think they struck a high. Uh, I'm going to give you the exact number now. Yes, they bounced off 124p, actually. That was uh, not that long ago. So just probably a little bit ahead of the announcement they were looking to raise a bit more money. Yeah. So the share price often softens a little bit going into one of these uh, placings, does it not? Okay, let's move on then and talk about the Renewables Infrastructure Group, who have also been out looking for money. What's the story there? That's uh, ticker TRIG, TRIG. Yeah, and they've also been successful, actually. They've announced that they've raised gross proceeds of $277 Uh, That was through the issue by way of a placing of over 210 million shares at a price of 132p. So a successful placing. In fact, that represents the largest single fundraise so far this year, obviously very early days. Infrastructure still remains uh, very, very popular. That also has been trading on a, on a significant premium, I think. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, I've got it on again on my screen about a 13% premium, which is broadly in line with what we've seen on average in the previous 12 months. Okay, so move on to uh, new possible placings and so on. Uh, let's start off with Gore Street Energy Storage Fund, ticker GSF. This is one I have an interest in since I actually own some shares in it. Uh, tell me what they're proposing to do. So there's a series of measures here. Basically, they require shareholder approval for, for changes to the investment policy, the dividend policy, and also approval for um, a basically a share issuance program, which gives them the flexibility to issue shares up to 750 million shares. So there will be a meeting to get that shareholder approval on the 11th of April. But they're going to change the dividend target as well, actually. So that's based on a 7% yield of the average NAV per share during the financial year, subject to a minimum level of 7p per share. They're looking at annual target dividend increases of half a p increments per share based on the progression of the average NAV. So a whole series of measures, but it looks as if they're getting set up to come back to the market. And remind us how big this trust is and what that would represent as a kind of potential placing if they were managed to get all that money in due course over a period of time. And they have obviously also been trading at a premium. So that's presumably there will be some demand for this. So they've got a market cap just short of about £400 million or so at the moment. They are trading on a historic yield of about 7%. Um, so obviously, if they were to issue 750 million new ordinary shares or even C shares, that would represent quite a jump up in terms of their size. I mean, they are trading on a 13% premium also at the moment, and that's not out of keeping what we've seen over the previous 12 months, average premium of 16%. Well, certainly the uh, the concept of energy storage is very much in, in the news and you would think that, uh, in principle at least, there's going to be a lot of demand for energy storage uh, as a result of what's going on in Western Europe and the war in Ukraine. So maybe they're in the right place at the right time. What about Greencoat Renewables, ticker GRP? What are they proposing to do? Yeah, they're also looking to hold a placing. Uh, the placing price will be €1.12, and that will be used if they are successful to pay down their credit facility. That's currently drawn by about €76 million, Euros, and also to execute on a pipeline, uh, which they valued at around €600 million. Euros. So apparently there's some operating and forward sale opportunities under exclusivity in Europe. And that pipeline apparently includes a 50% acquisition of a large European operating offshore wind farm. And they've also got a number of obligations, about 228 million euros to be precise, of committed forward sale investments. So quite busy in terms of uh, building out their portfolio at the moment. So briefly, of course, unfortunately, there's an ill wind that blows nobody some good. And uh, obviously, these uh, renewable energy trusts have been very popular at the moment. And of course, everything has happened so far in terms of rising energy prices and uh, inflation concerns, and of course, the war and the impact on energy supply, all perhaps working favourably. Do you detect from uh, talking to your clients, Simon, that this kind of demand for these kind of trust will continue for the time being, at least? Yeah, I think the premium ratings that you see throughout the kind of renewable energy infrastructure subsector suggest the demand is strong and is likely to remain strong. I mean, to be fair, that was the case before the recent events in Ukraine. You know, this has been a very popular area of the, of the investment company sector for a number of years. And I think there are a number of kind of structural reasons why that has been the case and one suspects will remain the case. I mean, the only thing pulling in the opposite direction is the risk of higher interest rates, higher bond yields and so on, which other things being equal has a slightly dampening effect on uh, NAVs and so on. Uh, but that obviously has not uh, affected sentiment in any way, uh, at least so far. Okay, let's move on and quickly talk about some results then. We've got a lot of results to get through, as you said, so we may spend a little less time on each one than we normally do. But uh, here goes 
anyway, let's quick off then with Manchester and London, ticker MNL, which is a relatively small trust, but an interesting one. What have they had to say? So these were interim results for the six months to the end of January. The NAV total return was down 6.6% in that period, and that compared with a rise of 6.2% for the MSCI UK Investable Market Index. So the story here that this is a um, relatively concentrated portfolio, very much focused on technology and software companies. Uh, unfortunately, in this period, uh, and there were a number of detractors in that space, including uh, names such as Meta Platforms and Netflix. In fact, uh, about half the portfolio is exposed to information technology. And the only name there that really worked for the this period was Microsoft. Again, other negative contributors were AMSL and Adobe. But I don't think that's kind of changed them investment team's plans. They're very much their motto is long the future. Uh, and they remain very focused on the opportunity. But one thing that's uh, probably worth noting from the results, this investment trust was launched back in 1972, so 50 years ago, and as well as announcing an interim dividend of 7p, they've announced a special dividend of 7p to mark the 50th anniversary of their listing. Well, that's certainly uh, interesting. Has that ever happened before? I mean, do you, can you recall instances where people make special dividends because they've been around for a long time? Uh, no, I can't actually. No, it's uh, obviously there are a number of investment trusts that have a very long pedigree. Uh, and obviously one thinks of F&C Investment Trust, but I don't remember them paying out a special interim dividend on the anniversary of their 150th from their launch. But there we go. Maybe it's a trend. Could be. There's always something for somebody out of these things. Very good. So let's move on then and talk next in the UK. We're going to talk about Schroeder British Opportunities, ticker SBO. They've had some interim results for the second half of last year. That's right, in which time their NAV total return uh, came in at 3.9% in positive territory. Their share price total return not quite as good as 2.1% as their discount widened a little bit. So just to remind people, it's a relatively new investment trust. This on Rory Bateman and Tim Creed, the managers at Schroeder's responsible for it. It's very much about providing fresh equity into small and mid-sized British businesses. So unsurprisingly, it's very stock-specific. The portfolio, which is now 91% invested, has six private and 32 listed holdings. So it's a kind of private-public hybrid. And while they've seen five out of the six private investments, they've seen valuation uplifts. There were some detractors in the period, I think, particularly on the private side. So names such as Civitas, Social Housing, Breedon and uh, Luchico as well. Okay, so this is, again, a useful perhaps reminder just to make the point that any results that relate to 2021 things might look quite different today. I mean, their performance in the first few months of the year might be very different if they've been the wrong side of the of the factors that have pushed the market down. But that's an interesting one, a, new, a relative newcomer. So still in the UK sector, we might as well pick up the results uh, from Strategic Equity Capital. We mentioned them already, ticker SEC with regard to the corporate developments there. But uh, let's just quickly take a rain check on their performance. And this is the interim results to the 31st of December in which time they saw an NAV total return up 1.9%. Uh, that compared to a rise of 2.1% for the FTSE Small Cap X Investment Trust Index. In share price terms, they came in at 2.5% in positive territories. The discount narrowed a little bit. But it's very much, again, very stock-specific, this portfolio. And the key driver of performance in that period uh, was a recommended bid for Clinogen Group from a European private equity firm. But as you say, there's been quite a bit of corporate activity on this particular vehicle, not least that recent 10% tender offer that we discussed earlier. And the manager of this trust, Ken Wooten, I mean, he's quite a highly respected uh, fund manager, I think. He's been in post now for, I think, 18 months. So presumably, you know, the question of whether or not the company can continue despite the attentions of uh, its uh, shareholders who want a different future, will depend very much, I guess, on his performance over the next 18 months or so. 
Uh, and this six-month period was perhaps neither here nor there in terms of uh, relative performance. But can you say anything about him as a as a fund manager and what his uh, impact he's had so far on this trust? Yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting one because 18 months is a relatively short period of time. But for most fund managers, it's a long enough period of time to see how the portfolio is shaping up and all the rest of it. I think given this particular investment style, they tend to run quite concentrated portfolios and quite significant stakes. So that it can take a little bit longer for that portfolio transition to come through. So I think most shareholders would share the views that you just expressed, but I think they'd also be looking at that liquidity point in 2025, so three years down the track, as a decent length of period of time to kind of measure how well he's doing. And then you know we'll see where the fund has got to by that stage. Let's move on and talk about uh, New Star Investment Trust, ticker NSI. Again, a rather specialist vehicle, this one, because of the uh, ownership structure. But uh, tell us about what their interim results have been like. So these were interim results for the six months to the end of December. They generated an NAV total return up 2.6%. That compared to a rise of 4.2% of the Investment Association Mixed Investment 40 to 85 Shares Index, uh, and also a rise of 7.9% for the MSCI All Country World Index. So this, as you say, is a slightly unusual vehicle. Uh, John Duffield, who's obviously uh, well-known and in his connection to Newstar, owns 59% of this vehicle. He's also director of the company. And it's a bit of a fund of funds, to be perfectly honest. But one of the things they did do during this period is that they um, sold a stake in a private company called Embark Group. Uh, and that meant that at the end of February, they were sitting on cash of about 21%. And apparently the intention is that the fund is likely to maintain a significant cash position going forward. Right, that's an interesting comment. I wonder what the thinking behind that might be. Might be something to do with the current market conditions. At this point, I might quickly mention that uh, for anyone who's a subscriber to the Moneymakers Circle, we have a profile this week of the Herald Investment Trust. This is a, a technology trust being managed for many years by uh, a lady called Katie Potts. And uh, there's an interesting question around technology at the moment. Is Obviously, there have been significant sell-off recently. Has that created an interesting opportunity? That's certainly going to be something you might be interested in, along with the normal regular features. Okay, moving on, we're going to talk now about some overseas trust, and we're going to kick off with Bailey Gifford Japan Trust, ticker BGFD, a very long-standing Japanese investment trust, which has been going through rather a tough time. Yeah, it has been a tough period, actually. These are the results of the six months to the end of February this year. In that period, the NAV total return was down 14.8%. That compared to a fall of 4.9% for the topics index. Share price terms down about 18.3% as the shares moved from a 1% premium to a 3% discount. So funnily enough, the Bailey Gifford name would probably provide a clue. It is focused on higher growth companies and with a real bias to mid cap and indeed small cap names as well. And certainly those smaller and higher growth businesses were out of favour in this period. And there's a number of holdings, long-standing holdings in the portfolio actually that, that struggled during that time. However, the managers remain optimistic. Matthew Brett has been responsible for this one since April 2018. And it's certainly a well-resourced team at Bailey Gifford looking at Japanese equities. Uh, and to support that, they've actually increased net gearing on Bailey Gifford Japan Trust. It's moved from 10% to 17% over that six-month period. And just to quickly comparing it to some of the others in the Japanese sector, I mean, has its performance been better or worse than some of the others? As you say, there's a lot of different styles represented there. And uh, over the longer term, Bailey Gifford Japan has been an excellent performer, but not so well even in uh, relative terms recently, I think. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the kind of change in market mood has hit this one. So you can see that coming through in terms of the six months numbers. So they're down 19% over the last six months, down 12% in the last three months. 
but they're in good company. I mean, if you look at that Japanese subsector, uh, there are a number of funds that also share its kind of more growth focused approach. So JP Morgan Japanese, uh, that would certainly be true of that fund. That's down 21% in NAV terms over the last three months. Fidelity Japan Trust down 22%. So compared with those uh, names, Spelling of Japan down 12 uh, not doing too badly. But then you've also got names who take a much more kind of value type approach. So Schroeder Japan Growth uh, down a mere 4%. And in fact, CC Japan Income and Growth down 1%. But everyone would say that they're all three-month numbers. That's a very short period of time. You've got to look at the long term. And over that period, we've got the Bailey Giver Japan fund up 43% NAV total return terms. Um, that CC Japan income and growth is probably the best performer over that period, up 50%. But the average for the, the peer group is up 40%. And apart from the pandemic period, I mean, it's been some time since uh, Bailey Gift Japan uh, traded at a discount. It did do that, obviously, after the pandemic sell-off. But uh, looking at the charts going back, it's uh, it goes back some way. He always used to trade at a, at a bonus premium, as I recall. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair point. It's It's been one of probably the best-rated Japanese-focused investment trust over any number of years. So I've got it on about a 4% discount or so at the moment, and that compares to a 1% premium rating in average over the previous 12 months. Moving on then, we're going to move on to European Assets, ticker EAT. They've had some annual results to the 31st of December. That's right, annual results in which time they generated an NAV total return of 16.3% and a share price to a return of 23.2% of that compared to a rise of 14.9% for its benchmark. So again, just to remind people, this one is focused on small and mid-cap size companies in Europe. Sam Kosh of BMO responsible for this one. It also has a dividend as well, actually, the long-term dividend policy, uh, which is covered by both income and capital, and dividends for the period totaled 8p. And in fact, they've given a target for 2022 of 8.8p, so not an insignificant rise, and that represents 6% of the NAV at the end of 2021. But the performance, the NAV performance has been driven by stock selection. So it's quite a concentrated portfolio uh, with uh, technology names in particular performing well. Okay, and now we're going to talk about Henderson Euro Trust, another trust that specializes in Europe, ticker HNE. But these are interim results that they're reporting. That's right, interim results to the end of January. A bit of a tougher period for this particular fund. So the NAV total return was down 6.7%. That compared to a fall of 1.2% for its benchmark, and in share price terms, also down about 6.8%. So that underperformance was attributed to the manager, who's a chap called Jamie Ross, Janice Henderson. Uh, that was attributed to his bias to growth companies uh, and the portfolio's exposure to gaming companies. A number of gaming companies didn't perform quite so well, and also in general, an exposure to online focused companies such as Delivery Hero, Worldline. And Nexi, and these are all kind of holdings that have performed well, uh, certainly during the pandemic period. But a uh, number of the pharmaceutical companies in the portfolio did do well, so Nova Norsk, Roche, and Sanofi. One of the other things that we picked up is actually that they'd sold a couple of holdings during that six month period, which they linked to their poor ratings on ESG grounds. So it's this theme that we're seeing from a number of investment managers about how they're becoming much more aware and focused on how these companies screen on ESG criteria and making investment decisions accordingly. Uh, but the gearing stood at just 0.1% at the end of January, so it's virtually de-geared at the moment. Okay, so now we'll talk about India Capital Growth Fund, ticker IGC. We mentioned Aberdeen New India earlier and how they've been doing and what they were doing in response to that, their rating being disappointing. We've had an annual results from India Capital Growth Fund, as I said, so what uh, how have they been doing by comparison? 
Yeah, they did well, actually. So these were results for the 12 months to the end of December. The NAV total return was up 37.9%. That compared with a rise of 39.7% for the return reference index, which is the BSE mid-cap index. So this is a fund run by Ocean Dial Asset Management. As the index would perhaps suggest, it does have a mid and small cap bias. And again, a relatively concentrated portfolio. Is the rating of this one doing better than the Aberdeen fund for that reason or for performance reasons or any of those? So I've got them trading on about a 14% discount or so at the moment. That compares to an average of 11% at present. But if you look at the performance record, as I mentioned, they kind of have got that mid-cap bias. They are somewhere behind on five-year NAV total return numbers. They're up 14% over that period, and that compares with 40% for Aberdeen New India and 22% for JP Morgan Indian. Okay, let's move on then and talk about uh, JP Morgan US Smaller Companies, ticker JUSC. They announced annual results for the year ended 31st December last year, and they outperformed the NAV total return came in at 17.7%. That compares to a rise of 15.7% for the Russell 2000 index. In share price terms, they came in at 16.5%. But it's a very experienced investment team, three managers led by Don Zan Jose, who's been there some time, and outperforms reflected positive stock selection while the sector allocation in healthcare and financials was also beneficial. The gearing stood about 7% or so at the end of the year, so that would have also been a positive factor. But I imagine that since then, the performance has not been quite so good this year, as smaller companies generally have uh, sold off. Would that be a fair comment? Yeah, I mean, you're right. Um, if you look over that three-month period, the NAV is down about 6% or so, and that's broadly in line with the decline we've seen for the Russell 2000 index. Okay, now we've got a couple of Vietnamese investment trusts, always the interesting ones, these. Uh, Vietnam Holding, VNH is the ticker. They've uh, announced some interim results for the six months to the end of last year. That's right, in which time they generated an NAV per share increase of 14.1% in US dollar terms, uh, and that compared to a rise of 10.6% for their reference index. In share price terms, they did a lot better, actually. They're up 31.7%, and that's in sterling terms, so mixing currencies a little bit here. But basically, during that period, the fund's overweight position in brokerages uh, contributed the most returns, while stock selection in real estate and also being overweight the retail sector also provided positive returns. Um, so always uh, interesting to read about what's going on in Vietnam. And it's worth noting that this one does have a focus on high growth companies there. Okay, so we can maybe compare that with Vina Capital Vietnam Opportunity Fund, ticker VOF. They've also produced results for the same period. So we can compare them, I guess, even if their style is somewhat different. Yeah, that's right. So the, the NAV per share increased again in US dollar terms by 5.8% during that period. So the NAV total return came in at 6.9%. But they've got uh, quite a lot of exposure to the real estate sector. That's about 26 of the portfolio and financial services. That was about 22%. And certainly real estate returned just under 16% over that six-month period. Uh, and there was a couple of names that also did quite well for them in that space. The financial sector delivered a 4% return, so a little bit more muted and again, they had some decent performers in that area. And the board has also declared or maintained its dividend of $0.08 cents per share. 
So I think it's fair to say, uh, I think I got this right, that uh, VOF, this last one we've just been discussing, that does pay a dividend, but the other Vietnamese trust, there's a couple of them, don't. And uh, one of the issues with these has always been they do continue to trade at a discount. They've made sort of various attempts for some of them to try and reduce the discount, but that doesn't uh, seem to have had much effect so far. Would that be a fair comment? And if so, what do you think the issue there is as far as this particular type of trust is concerned? Yeah, I think that is a fair comment. And if you look at the ratings, I mean, we've got Vietnam Opportunity on about a 22% discount or so at the moment. That compares to an average 18% discount over the previous 12 months. Vietnam Holding, 16% discount. That's broadly in line with its average, but obviously still uh, a double-digit discount. And it's also worth noting that Vina Capital Vietnam Opportunity Fund bought back 2.8 million shares in that six-month period. So about $18 million worth. So why do these things consistently trade on uh, discounts? Well, one could argue that it's possibly a function of the appeal they have. So their shareholder bases tend to be quite dominated by institutional investors. So whereas uh, I'm sure exposure to Vietnam is very important, equally there will be those investors who will look at the discount levels very, very closely as well. Indeed. I think it's a general trend seems to be that whereas we saw a huge proliferation of single country funds back in the 90s and so on, they do seem to be becoming less popular than they once were anyway. Would you say that's a general trend or is that perhaps we're pushing the envelope a little bit too far there? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, single country funds are relatively few and far between at the moment. And you're right, you know, going back, what, 25 years or so, there was a whole proliferation of them. A vast majority of those have now disappeared. So I think where there is a preference for exposure to age or emerging markets for that matter, people prefer the more diversified mandates. Okay, so let's now quickly pick up some uh, private equity trusts. There have been a lot of comment about private equity trusts in the last year, and uh, saying both that they were expected to perform well and also that they might be making some efforts to reduce their discounts, uh, which remain quite wide in a number of cases. Let's just pick up some of these results then and see what we can say about them. Let's start off with BMO Private Equity. That's ticker BPET. They've had some annual results out for the uh, 2021. What uh, what did that look like? Yeah, very strong set of results, actually. So the NAV total return came in at 35.8%, uh, compared to a rise of 18.3% for the FTSE All Share Index. In share price terms, uh, their share price total return was up 66.2% as their discount narrowed from 37% to 24%. But the valuation uplifts, well, that reflected a very strong period for realizations, which of course is a common theme across all the listed private equity funds, and also improved trading for some of the underlying companies. But uh, it was a strong period for realizations in general. So new investments of about £83 million were made whereas they saw realizations worth 161 million, so net cash inflow during that period. And the realizations were at an aggregate premium of 32%. So this all meant that there was a performance fee paid to the investment management team. Hamish Nair has been responsible for this one for a long time, uh, and the performance fee of 4.5 million pounds was paid. Okay, so that was a good result. So those who said that private equity was going to do well would certainly be vindicated if they'd... uh invested in that one at the start of last year. Let's talk about Pantheon International. What have they had to say? This is not an annual report, I think. This is just a, an update on NAV, I think. That's great. Yeah, so they gave us an, an update for the end of February. And basically, the NAV was up about 1% or so during the month. And that was a reflection of some of the underlying valuations that are coming through. So as always, we've talked about this before, you've, you've got to remember that there's always a time delay for a number of these listed private equity funds. So if you look at Pantheon as a case in point, about 15% of the underlying valuations are dated as at the end of February, but then you've got about 47% as at the end of 
last year. And in fact, 38% still as at the 30th of September last year. So still awaiting for those year-end numbers to come through. Okay, so that was obviously uh, an NAV update, but we also do have some annual results from Princess Private Equity, ticker PEY, for the whole year, which is perhaps more comparable to the performance of VMO Private Equity. Uh, How did they do by comparison? Another decent set of results, actually, perhaps not quite as spectacular as BMO, but the NAV was up 19.4% during 2021. And in share price total return terms, they're up 29.3%. Um, and, and part of the story there is that they paid a dividend worth 67 cents back to shareholders. But again, this idea that realisation is just very, very strong last year. So that totaled 463 million euros, and that represented about 50% of the opening NAV. Uh, a number of their leading holdings were realised during the year. They did make investments. They totaled 342 million, but again, net cash inflows during the period. So at the end of 2021, uh, they're sat with assets of over a billion euros and effectively their net liquidity. So basically their cash stood at four million pounds. So they were pretty much fully invested. Right. So the, the big question, obviously, for a lot of these uh, private equity trusts is, well, you did very well last year. What next? How are you going to uh, take it forward from here? The markets have been a little more choppy this year and private equity has suffered a little bit in line with the public equity markets. But the discounts, well, there have been some movement in discounts, as we've seen. So there has been a trend upwards in a number of cases, uh, but not all. And I guess what strikes me looking at the numbers in this sector is there is such a wide disparity of performance in there. So you've really got to you know, pick your trust with some care. No, I think that's absolutely right. And, and that's very much the asset class, to be perfectly honest. It makes a, a tremendous difference uh, which horse you back in this particular race. But in terms of discounts, I mean, the average discount on a listed private equity fund is probably around about 20%. But within the peer group, there's, there's quite a lot of variation. So you look at 3i group, which is the largest constituent. They're still trading on, on a premium rating, but thereafter, there are very few names also in that camp. And you do find quite wide discounts. If you look at some of those private equity fund of funds, so we mentioned BMO private equity. We've talked about Pantheon International as well. You've also got names like Harbourvest, ICG, Enterprise and Standard Life private equity. They're all in a range broadly between 18% to about 24%. ICG, perhaps a little bit wider, actually at 27%. So they're certainly on relatively wide discounts. Although, as I mentioned earlier, we are looking at NAVs that in many cases don't reflect the the, the full position, certainly at the end of last year. Okay, so now we can move on to talk about some specialist trusts. And we're going to kick off perhaps with International Public Partnerships Limited, ticker INPP, because they produce some annual results. They're obviously in the infrastructure space. And uh, what did their results look like? Yeah, so annual results for last year. I mean, we saw the NAV move up about 0.7% uh, during that time. So that was certainly a quieter period. Though obviously, it's a total return story, the dividend important part of the return. In fact, the annualized total shareholder return since IPO comes in at 8.5%. So that will be kind of broadly in line with their target. And they made the point that 100% of their forecast investment portfolio receipts were received last year, which wasn't the case back in 2020, obviously, during that period of disruption following the onset of the pandemic. Um, And they also declared uh, a dividend of 7.55p in respect of that financial year. And that was fully covered by cash 1.1 times by net operating cash flows. They've also expressed their dividend targets for 2022 and 2023, and they're looking to increase those again. So moving up to 7.74p and 7.93p respectively. Which is going to give you a yield of what? Somewhere approaching 5%, something like that. Would that be about right? 
Yeah, so I've got them on a yield of about 4.5% on a historic basis at the moment. So it's going to be not too far off that. Okay, so let's move on then and talk about Tufton Oceanic Assets, ticker SHIP. This is one of the shipping trusts that uh, came to market not that long ago. They've had some interim results out. That's right, interim results for the six months to the end of December. They generated an NAV total return of 22.3% in that time. And in fact, they've increased their target dividend from the third quarter of last year from 0.075 cents to 0.08 cents. So I think that's probably a reflection of how well things are going in that space. They've made the point that they've acquired five vessels and sold three vessels uh, during the period. They've also raised a bit, bit of money. I think we talked about this in months gone by. They raised about $51 million through to tap issues. Uh, but they're making new acquisitions as well. They made a $26 million acquisition of a handy size bulker, which always sounds uh, an interesting concept, particularly for people not in the maritime business. So uh, the only thing that's surprising about this is, uh, I mean, this uh, shipping we know was obviously performing very strongly last year because of the uh, supply shortages and all those other issues around. But I recall this one was trading at a, at a premium for a while, but it's not at a premium anymore, is it? No, that's correct. I've got it on a discount of about 4% or so at the moment. So we have seen the share price come off, not dramatically, obviously, but probably over the last three months, it's probably down about 4% or so. Okay, so now we can talk about some renewable energy trusts. Let's kick off with US Solar Fund, ticker USF. They've had some annual results uh, for last year. They have indeed, in which time they saw their NAV per share up 1%. And that was a reflection of some life extensions. For selected assets, there have also been some downward discount rate adjustments, uh, and there was also an uplift in the valuation of their interest in a particular project as well. And also, lest we forget, some um, better looking kind of long term electricity price forecasts, which all helps. So, the total shareholder return since IPO comes in at 3.1%, which I would suggest uh, will be a little bit lower than the target they would have expressed at that time. But in terms of the generation, the electricity generation during the period, that came in about 4% or so below budget. And that was partially as a result of lower than expected irradiance. And also there was some curtailment as well. But they also declared a dividend of 5.5 cents for that full year. And that was fully cash covered, actually 1.82 times. Uh, and they've given a dividend target of 5.58 cents for 2022. Okay, so you might look at those yields in, in a moment, but let's next move on and talk about VH Global Sustainable Energy Opportunities, uh, ticker GSEO, and they have produced a annual report to the 31st of December. That's right, and they gave an updated NAV, which is 104p, and in fact, uh, they've seen a 6.1% increase per share since their IPO and a total shareholder return of 8.3%. So in terms of the net assets of the company, um, they benefited from a placing back in December, as well as valuation uplifts. And that was specifically from uh, the US terminal storage assets in the portfolio. But they've declared dividends of 1.25p over the period, and that exceeds their 1p target. And they've reaffirmed their dividend target of 5p for their financial year 2022. So the portfolio is now around about 80% committed or deployed uh, and the portfolio is valued at just short of £324 million. Uh, just a quick update, Simon, on the yields that you're getting on these uh, two trusts we've talked about in the renewable sector. That's US Solar and VH Global Sustainable Energy Opportunities. 
Yep. So I've got US solar fund on about a 4.8% yield on a historic basis. Uh, I mean, VH Global Sustainable Energy Opportunities is still very early days in its development. So I've got a historic yield of about 1.1% or so. We'll move on to Golden Prospect Precious Metals, uh, ticker GPM, which, as its name suggests, is in the uh, precious metals business uh, investments. Uh, and they've had some annual results for 2021. And uh, I think that's going to be an interesting story to see how well they did. Yeah, it is interesting. Uh, the NAV was actually down 20% last year. And the point was made that while the gold price held a relatively tight range last year, performance of gold mining equities was weaker on declining sentiment at that stage. Though I think the results were quite right to point out that there's been a more supportive backdrop so far this year. And in fact, the managers believe that inflationary pressures are likely to remain and they view it as a, as a positive for precious metals, which clearly provide a store of value, uh, particularly at a time when cash is offering negative real returns. The manager's view is that mines or miners are attractively valued at present, uh, and they point out that they're trading at or near record low earnings multiples. How has that one performed this year? I mean, obviously, there's been a little bit of strengthening in the gold price, but not as much as some people thought there might be. And uh, obviously, mining companies tend to be geared to the gold price, so they do particularly well when gold is rising and not so well when gold is falling. Has the rating on this one improved at all or the performance improved this year on the back of what's going on? Well, they've enjoyed a decent three months or so. So in NAV terms, it's up about 18%, uh, which means over the last three years in NAV total return terms, they're up 132%. Though it's interesting when you look at the numbers, five-year NAV returns only coming at 31%, which perhaps is a reflection of how volatile this particular area can be. Golden Prospect, I've got trading on about an 18% discount or so at the moment. Okay, so we're getting towards the end of our results summary, and we're going to talk next about a couple of property sector trusts. We're going to kick off with uh, PRS REIT, ticker PRSR, which has uh, produced an updated valuation. That's right. Uh, and this is looking at the, the six-month period to the end of December, in which time they saw their EPRA NTA, which is equivalent to the NAV, up about 5.4% or so. So I think we talked about this particular investment company a number of times. It has been a very busy period as they've literally built their portfolio out. So during that six-month time, they added 505 new homes. So just to remind people, this property investment company is focused on new build family homes for the private rental market and seen quite substantial growth. So at the end of December, I think the portfolio stood at 4,489 different homes. So that was up 42% year on year uh, and expected rental value of £43.5 million. So quite a substantial growth. Um, they made the point in the in the results that 99% of the homes were occupied or reserved and actually rent collection relative to rent invoice came in at 99%. So the level of arrears was relatively small. In terms of the dividend, well, they paid a 2p dividend in respect to this period, and that was 70% covered. Yes, so as I recall, this one had an initial target of 5,000 homes, and uh, that was delayed by COVID because of the impact on builders. But they've now upped that target again, and rental property is particularly uh, good quality rental property is much in demand. So that's an interesting property vehicle, specialist property vehicle. And then we come on finally to Triple Point Social Housing, which is another specialist kind of trust, a uh, very different business model, uh, where we know there have been a number of issues with regulators on the social housing front. But uh, tell us what their own results look like uh, 
for the last year, Simon. Yep, annual results to the end of December. Their EPRA NTA, so again, equivalent to NAV, that was up about 1.7% in that time, which meant their NAV total return came in at 6.6%. So at the end of December, the portfolio was valued at £642 million. They've actually acquired 44 new properties during the financial year for a price of £60 million. So they now, the portfolio consists or consisted at the end of December of 488 properties, though they have acquired some since the year end. In terms of their earnings per share, that came in at 4.82p and that was up from 4.61p in 2020. Uh, And the point was made that 100% of contracted rental income is CPI or RPI linked, so in other words, linked to inflation. Dividends totaling 5.2p per share were declared in respect of that financial year, and that was up from 5.18p per share in 2020, and that was in line with their target. The dividend was 0.99 times covered on EPRA earnings run rate basis. And again, they made the point that the, the proposed amendments to the investment policy uh, that they're talking about will be put to the shareholder vote in an upcoming uh, AGM. I think that just gives them a bit more flexibility in terms of what they're trying to do. Yes, and as we've commented before, this uh, particular trust has been caught in the kind of fallout from the uh, issues surrounding Civitas Social Housing, the other comparable social housing trust where there was a short seller, made a, an assault, if you like, a public uh, attack on the company and highlighted these uh, some of these regulatory issues that uh, the trust has had and some other issues as well. So uh, what's been happening to the share price and the rating of, of this one? Is it doing better or worse than... Uh, Civitas, and uh, is it still trading at a discount? Uh, it certainly is still trading at a discount. I've got it on about a 14% discount or so at the moment. Um, that compares with a 20% discount for Civitas Social Housing. We have seen a little bit of a recovery in terms of its share price. Um, I've got it at about 90p or so at the moment. Not too long ago, probably uh, at the start of March, it hit about an 83p, 84p. On intraday trading, it's uh, recovered partially since then, but obviously, as I mentioned, uh, still below its NAV. And therefore, as a result of that, the yield has gone up on this one, as indeed on Civitas. Uh, So they look on the surface quite attractive, I think. Uh, But obviously, it's clear that these issues do need to be resolved before investors come back to them in uh, any significant number. Well, that appears to be the interpretation one should put on that, that there has been some upward movement, as you say. Yeah, that's right. So the yields, just to put the numbers around that, triple point social housing, the yield on a historic basis is coming up 5.7% at the moment. Civitas social housing, 6.5%. Okay, so that's all we have time for this week. It, uh, we have had to shift through quite a lot of results, uh, and I guess the same will be true next week as well. There'll be some more. But uh, it has been a, a slightly more positive uh, week for the market, and we'll have to wait and see how that pans out. Uh, there's some in- interesting technical indicators that suggest this sort of rally we've seen in uh, in equities and accompanied by rising bond yields uh, up against some in- interesting technical levels. So it'll be interesting to see whether that is able to continue. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.